This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff Cummings. Welcome back, everybody. It's good to have you here. World War II was still a heavy threat in 1944, though only overseas in Europe and Asia. Thousands of American men were sent overseas to take part in the war effort, including many in the movie business. Some, such as Bob Hope, Fred Astaire, and Bing Crosby, were too old to fight on the front, so they entertained the troops through the United Service Organization's World Touring Circuit. Others, such as Cary Grant, Jimmy Stewart, and Clark Gable, took time off from their acting contracts to fight for their country. Those who stayed home helped the war effort by starring in patriotic or morale-boosting films that were then sent to troops for viewing overseas. We heard a lot of the songs that featured in those films in 1943, and three more produced Academy Award-nominated songs in 1944. Those songs are just three of 12, yep, 12, nominated for Best Original Song in 1944. All 12 of the songs appeared in musicals, featuring the top movie singer in the business as well as a young crooner appearing in his third movie. More than just having all the nominated songs come from musicals, it's clear that 1944 was a big year for the movie musical. MGM, the undisputed king of the movie musical, got its groove back after a couple of bumps in the road in the early 1940s. The stars who had made musicals sing on screen in the late 1930s, including Judy Garland, Fred Astaire, and Bing Crosby, were the biggest names on the silver screen in 1944. Those three and a few others were finding themselves popular again after the public seemingly shooed them away. Now before we go into our discussion of these nominated songs, here's a little background on the evolution of the music branch of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. It's not known exactly how many members of the Academy made up the music branch in 1944, but it was close to 100. They have a voice on the Board of Governors, the top body of the Academy that makes final decisions on award rules. Composer Nat Finston had been serving as Academy Governor since 1941, the same year that the music branch started. As the task of picking the nominated songs and scores proved to be more difficult, and because there was often public outcry over who was allowed to vote for the Academy Awards, Finston was at the forefront of leading the changes that the music branch needed to make. These would go further than the quick changes made in 1943 after Jerome Kern protested the selection of The Last Time I Saw Paris as an Academy Award-winning song. For more on that, I invite you to listen to episode number 9. Instead of letting the studio do its own nomination voting without any supervision, the music branch required each studio to vote for its song and score nominees on official Academy ballots. The ballots were returned to the Academy and tabulated by the Pricewaterhouse accounting firm, with each studio's ballots counted separately from one another. So it was no longer just submitting one song, but rather voting on several if that option was available. But the major rule change that the music branch asked the Board of Governors to make official in 1944 was allowing only Academy members to pick the winners of the music awards. 
Previously, voting for the Song Award was open to Academy members, Screen Actors Guild members, including thousands of background actors, as well as Directors Guild members and Writers Guild members. The Acting, Directing, Writing, and Best Picture Awards allowed Academy members and outside Guild members to vote. All cinematographers in the industry voted for the Cinematography Awards. Art direction, sound recording, film editing, and special effects were chosen from select committees. And the two score awards were voted on by members of the music branch. That means the Best Original Song Award is the first official award to be truly called an Academy Award voted on strictly by Academy members across all branches. However historic and significant that is, still have to remember that the recipients of the music awards were receiving small plaques. Almost all the plaques would be replaced eventually with the official Oscar statuette a few years later, though. Alright, so with that out of the way, let's get started to learning more about the 12 songs nominated for 1944. As a reminder, there will be some major plot points revealed, so tread carefully through this episode. We'll go through the list alphabetically, starting with the song I Couldn't Sleep a Wink Last Night from the movie Higher and Higher. There was a Broadway musical called Higher and Higher, staged in 1940, with songs by Richard Rodgers and Lorenz Hart. But RKO immediately wanted to get rid of those songs in favor of a new song score to give it a fresh life, and to write songs that would work better for one of its stars, Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra plays Frank Sinatra in this film, his third time in front of the camera, but the first time he had to do more than just sing a song and leave. In 1944, Sinatra was a little more than a year into his solo career, choosing to leave a cushy position as the lead singer with Tommy Dorsey's orchestra. Sinatra was just 29 years old at the time, unsure of adding acting to his resume, but sure that it would help his visibility in the same way it made Bing Crosby a superstar. RKO Pictures was also looking to mold him in the same image as Bing Crosby, shaping the screenplay around Sinatra's singing talents even though he is in a supporting role. The Sinatra Show was in big red letters at the top of the movie poster. Sinatra has a budding relationship with a scullery maid in a mansion across the courtyard from him. That maid is Millie, played by French actress Michelle Morgan. Millie has been convinced to play the role of Pamela, a debutante, in order to marry a rich man and help his boss get out of debt. Frank comes to the house to offer flowers to Millie slash Pamela, as well as perform one of his songs, which he calls a torch ballad. The song is I Couldn't Sleep a Wink Last Night, which the chauffeur, played by Dooley Wilson, plays on piano. The song is about a couple who has been fighting, and the man confesses that he is unable to sleep unless he knows she is all right. I couldn't sleep a Because we had that silly fight I thought my heart would break the whole night through I knew that you'd be sorry And I'm sorry too I didn't have my favorite dream Which I hold you tight 
had to call you up this morning to see if everything was still alright. Yes, I had to call you up this morning. Cause I couldn't sleep a wink last night I didn't have my favorite dream The one in which I hold you tight I had to call you up this morning To see if everything was still all right, yes, I had to call you up this morning, cause I couldn't sleep a wink last Frank Sinatra was the most popular singer in the United States starting in 1941, and when he made his solo debut in 1942 at the Paramount Theater in New York City, entertainer Jack Benny said, quote, I thought the building was going to cave in. I never heard such commotion, all for this fellow I had never heard of, end quote. That commotion didn't translate immediately to the movies, as Higher and Higher made just $2 million at the box office. It didn't help that the songs didn't get much radio play. The musician strike of 1942, which lasted until November 1944, affected the output of commercial recordings. If a studio orchestra was in the union, they couldn't participate in recording songs. That meant background singers needed to step in to vocalize the instruments. And that's what you hear on the commercial recording of I Couldn't Sleep a Wink Last Night. Sinatra is backed up by the Bobby Tucker singers, who made a mint during the musician strike by doing what the musicians couldn't do. I couldn't sleep a wink last night Because we had that Silly fight I thought my heart would break The whole night through I knew that you'd be sorry And I'm sorry too I didn't have my favorite dream The one in which I hold you tight I had to call you up This morning To see if everything Was still alright Yes, I had to call you up This morning Cause I couldn't sleep a wink last night. The song was written by Jimmy McHugh and Harold Adamson, who were already Academy Award nominees, but still were looking for the big breakout hit 
that their contemporaries kept churning out year after year. Getting the assignment to write music for Frank Sinatra was their gateway to superstardom, and McHugh said he found writing music for Frank Sinatra quite easy once he knew Old Blue Eyes would be singing them. We're song tailors, McHugh told reporter Erskine Johnson in 1944. We build a song to fit the singer or the orchestra. McHugh knew how Sinatra sang, and his nominated song, I Couldn't Sleep a Wink Last Night, was a Sinatra song through and through. So were the other songs that Sinatra sang in the movie that had an equal chance of getting nominated by the RKO Music Department, particularly a lovely way to spend an evening. We hear it first when Franks is singing it at his apartment while Millie watches. One of the two reprises comes during a walk in the park with Millie the night of her debutante ball, and it has the luscious orchestration of any of the performances. This is a lovely Frank Sinatra had a connection with the creators of the next nominated song. Sinatra had sung a few songs written by Jewel Stein and Sammy Kahn in the early 1940s at the beginning of Stein and Kahn's partnership, but Sinatra couldn't sing their tunes in Higher and Higher because they were under contract at Universal. That's where they wrote two songs for that studio's big morale-boosting film for the troops called Follow the Boys. Unlike all the all-star pictures I mentioned in the previous episodes that other studios made for the war effort, Universal's Follow the Boys is a big downer. And that probably wasn't good for the movie's box office. George Raft plays a vaudeville star who moves to Hollywood to make it big. He falls in love with one of the rising stars at Universal, marries her, and then forgets about her when World War II comes and he is tasked with putting on big worldwide entertainment tours. So why is it a downer? Well, George Raft's character dies in the end when the ship he is on is attacked by a Japanese submarine, and the final moments of the film memorializes those who died during the war while serving as entertainers for the troops. Again, not the kind of emotion you want audiences to have as they are leaving a movie that you wanted to help boost their morale and buy war bonds. Follow the Boys features almost all of Universal's current hitmakers, Marley and Dietrich, Orson Welles, Jeanette McDonald, just to name a few. The one who sings the Academy Award-nominated song is Dinah Shore, who was the top-selling female singer at the time. At just 27 years old, she was just as famous as Bing Crosby. And like Frank Sinatra, Dinah Shore was making a play for motion picture stardom. Though that movie career never really panned out, she made a big impression when she did appear on screen, as was the case in Follow the Boys. She takes part in a radio show that is being broadcast around the world, and she sings a jazzy love song called I'll Walk Alone. The song is a woman's promise to be faithful to her man fighting abroad, even if it means being lonely and only being able to dream of him. She's content knowing that he's lonely too, and she tells him to dream of her as well. 
Shore's silky voice doesn't put a somber tone on the song, even though we see images of soldiers around the world listening to her somberly as she sings. Shore recorded I'll Walk Alone and took it to number one on the Billboard sales charts. Because of the musician strike, there is no instrumental accompaniment on the single, only background singers who serve as harmonizers. Shore's recording sold one million copies, one of the first times a female recording had reached such a momentous milestone. The next nominated song has the same theme of the singer being apart from a loved one. This one is I'm Making Believe, from the 20th Century Fox film Sweet and Low Down. The plot was built around Benny Goodman and his orchestra, which was one of the top big bands in the country in the 1940s. This was the first time Benny Goodman was an integral part of the story, instead of coming in and out of a few scenes. Goodman has just hired a new trombone player, and his presence causes a love triangle as well as some discourse within the band. The nominated song, I'm Making Believe, is performed by the band singer Trudy. She's played by Lynn Berry, who had portrayed a big band singer in Glenn Miller's orchestra for Sun Valley Serenade and Orchestra Wives. This kind of typecasting was interesting because Berry didn't have a notable singing voice, and all of her singing in all three films was done by Lorraine Elliott. So it's Berry who is on screen during the song performance, but the voice is Elliott. Written by Mac Gordon and James Monaco, the song is tailor-made for Benny Goodman and his band. 
Gordon had written two Oscar-nominated songs for big band leader Glenn Miller for his two films, so 20th Century Fox asked Gordon to do the same for Goodman. Harry Warren didn't work with Mac Gordon on this film, even though they had just written the Academy Award-winning You'll Never Know for the 20th Century Fox film Hello, Frisco, Hello the year before. It's likely that Warren's contract had ended in 1943, forcing Gordon to find a new composer. Working on Sweet and Low Down was the beginning of a new partnership for Gordon and Monaco, a partnership that would unfortunately be short-lived. But back to I'm Making Believe. The song begins with a brief instrumental introduction with muted trumpets and the clarinet section, before the brief lyric portion sings about two separated lovers who were able to sustain themselves only by dreaming they are together. After Elliot singing, Goodman has a brief clarinet solo followed by his new trombone player. On screen, it's actor James Cardwell playing the trombone, but Bill Harris, an actual member of Goodman's band, performed the trombone part on the soundtrack. You'll have to forgive the brief dialogue near the end. It's a woman in love with Cardwell who wants her father to potentially help promote Cardwell. I presume it's the tone quality you're interested in. <laughs> I can't hear a word you're saying. No, I was just curious because, well, because Benny's trying so hard to build him up. Have you a pencil, Dad? No, oh, my dear, I'm sorry, I haven't. Well, never mind. In the film, the song was recorded in an unseen scene, and we later learned that it sold one million copies and made Cardwell a star. The same thing happened in real life for Ella Fitzgerald and her version of I'm Making Believe, 
with backup singers the Ink Spots. Fitzgerald's recording was done in August 1944 and released in November. At that time, the musician's strike was ending, and musicians were starting to come back into the recording studio. It certainly helped this recording spend two weeks at number one on Billboard's sales charts. I'm making believe that you're in my arms Though I know you're so far away Making believe I'm talking to you Wish you could hear what I say And here in the gloom of my lonely room we're dancing like we used to do Making believe Is just another way of dreaming So till my dreams come true I'll whisper goodnight Turn out the light and kiss my pillow Making believe it's you it's not known why, but Benny Goodman did not officially release a record of I'm Making Believe. Because of the musician strike that lasted from 1942 to mid-1944, Goodman's band and other groups such as his were unable to make many recordings, but Goodman didn't take advantage of the end of the strike around the end of production of Sweet and Low Down to get back into the record store. So I'm excited to talk about the next nominated song because it introduces one of the great Hollywood legends to this podcast. That man is Gene Kelly. The movie is Cover Girl, and the song is Long Ago and Far Away. When he was hired for Cover Girl, his sixth movie, Gene Kelly was just starting to make an impression on moviegoers with his acting, but most importantly with his dance skills. Kelly made his movie debut with For Me and My Gal in 1942 opposite Judy Garland. Not a bad way to start out a motion picture career. Though he got his start at MGM with For Me and My Gal, and even though that's the studio that would make him a superstar, it's Columbia Pictures' cover girl that started him on the path to stardom and featured a lot of his trademark styles that would shape his career going forward. Kelly wanted to reshape how dance was portrayed on film, getting rid of the lavish and romantic partner dances that Fred Astaire had made popular for about a decade. Kelly was more athletic and pushed the boundaries of what a dancer could do, much more so than what Astaire put on screen. That's evident with his alter ego dance and cover girl in which he dances with a reflection of himself. A little detail of the plot of cover girl is important as we discuss the nominated song long ago and far away. Kelly plays a small time choreographer and dance hall owner named Danny, who is in a romantic relationship with one of his dancers, Rusty, played by Rita Hayworth. The two have plans to make it big together, but when Rusty lands a major magazine cover, her star takes off quickly, and Danny wonders if it's best that he's left behind while Rusty follows her career wherever it takes her. He laments about this to his business partner, played by Phil Silvers, not knowing that Rusty is standing behind him. Of course, Rusty doesn't want to leave Danny, and it's only through song that she convinced Danny that he's the perfect man she had once dreamed of long ago and far away. She walks away after singing and Danny picks up the song to express his feeling that Rusty is 
his perfect love. The song ends in a dance that is about as conventional as any you'll ever see Gene Kelly do on screen. Long ago and far away I dreamed a dream one day And now that dream is here beside me Long the skies were overcast But now the clouds have passed You're here at last Chills run up and down my spine Aladdin's lamp is mine The dream I dreamed was not denied me Just one look and then I knew That all I longed for long ago was you Daddy, I dreamed a dream one day and now that dream is here beside me Long the skies were overcast But now the clouds have passed You're here at last Chills run up and down my spine Aladdin's lamp is mine The dream I dreamed was not denied me Just one look and then I knew Martha Mears, who was the singing voice for Marjorie Reynolds on the hit song Right Christmas, sings for Rita Hayworth here. The vocal range that composer Jerome Kern creates is quite extensive, and of course a trained singer like Mears can handle it well. Kelly wasn't really known as a strong vocalist, but he handles the melody well. So well, in fact, that Kern had said to Kelly, quote, If you want to make an old man happy, please sing it again, end quote. We get to hear Gene Kelly sing the song once more in the film. Rusty and Danny do go their separate ways in the film, with Rusty enjoying success on Broadway and set to marry her manager. 
Rusty runs out on her wedding and returns to Danny at the bar where they once hung out together. She finds Danny singing long ago and far away, then announces her return by joining in, though she's too emotional to finish. The dream I dreamed was not denied me Just one look and then I It is indeed another memorable melody from Kern, who won an Oscar for the great melody for The Way You Look Tonight and the modestly memorable The Last Time I Saw Paris. This was the first and only time Kern and Gershwin had worked together, and the seven songs they wrote for CoverGirl display such range of musical and lyrical styles that it's sad that neither could find another worthy project together. But they made an impact with Long Ago and Far Away, giving Kern his fifth Academy Award nomination in Gershwin, his second. We're back to World War II for our next nominated song, though it's more of a romantic comedy than Follow the Boys. This film is Up in Arms, featuring comedian Danny Kaye in his film debut and Dinah Shore getting a bigger screen presence than she had in Follow the Boys when she sang the nominated song I'll Walk Alone. She sings the nominated song for Up in Arms called Now I Know, one of three songs made for the film by longtime collaborators Harold Arlen and Ted Kohler. Now I Know is the film's love song, which Shore performs just before she and other three characters are deployed to the South Pacific during World War II. Her character, a nurse named Virginia, is in love with Danny Kaye's character, also named Danny. But Danny is in love with Nurse Mary, played by Constance Dowling. It's okay if you don't really get all of that. The song is Virginia's best attempt to tell Danny that she loves him, and the lyrics detail the strange feelings she's having, such as walking around in a wonderful glow. Through the song, she discovers that love is causing these feelings. I used to be bewildered My outlook on life then all at once the mist seemed to
have planned that we meet. Never dreamed in my wildest Music and lyrics aren't as memorable as Shore's interpretation, which feels like something Bing Crosby might sing. Surprisingly, Crosby didn't make a record of the song, and neither did Dinah Shore, mostly because the musician strike was still going on at the time, and the song would not have done as well with backup singers vocalizing musical instruments as some of the other songs did at the time. Shore still had the success of I'll Walk Alone to keep her status as the top female singer alive, and the reviews of her acting were overshadowed by Danny Kaye's popular debut, which allowed him to have his own radio show in 1945. Now I Know got a pretty funny reprise near the end of the film, as Kaye mistakenly plays the record that has Shore's performance of the song on it. In order to further confuse his fellow soldiers for some reason that I wasn't entirely sure of, he mouths the words to the song while dancing around the room. It's not until the record skips that it's discovered that Shore's voice isn't really coming out of his mouth. So if the Academy Awards had featured vocal performances of the nominated songs in this time, Shore would have had two opportunities to showcase her singing voice. But without a commercial record to help keep the songs in voters' minds after the film's February 1944 premiere, the chances of it getting a lot of votes from Academy members was going to be quite low. The same was true for the next nominated song, which came from the film Minstrel Man. The movie came from the ultra-low-budget Producers Releasing Corporation, which distributed mostly B-movies that cost less than $100,000 and made almost just as much money. I was dreading watching this film based on the title alone because I knew there would be at least one scene of a white man dressed in blackface entertaining a crowd. And unfortunately... There is more than one scene featuring Benny Fields in blackface as Dixie Boy Johnson, who was billed as the greatest minstrel performer in the world. From about 1920 to 1940, minstrel shows were popular forms of entertainment featuring white people in blackface, portraying black people as silly or cartoonish. Many of the early silent films and talking pictures used white actors in blackface to portray black characters, whether comedic or dramatic. 
I've only talked peripherally about blackface in cinema on this podcast because no nominated song until now had featured a white performer in blackface. But Minstrel Man is now infamous in that regard, and this is as good a place as any to dive a little deeper into it. Fred Astaire, Bing Crosby, and Al Jolson are three of the top entertainers who put on blackface for one or more scenes in the movies. And perhaps it was viewed as endearing back then, but when it's watched in the post-civil rights era, it's straight-up offensive, especially for me as a black man. For starters, why not hire black people to perform these numbers? Sure, there was a lot of segregation going on in entertainment at the time, but black people had always been a part of the movies. And Hattie McDaniel had proved that it was possible to be rewarded for a good performance. To make matters worse, the blackface makeup causes the performer to look like a clown. Even if the performance is not over the top, it still come across as such. Some of the blackface performances of the early 20th century continued to be celebrated to this day, such as Al Jolson in The Jazz Singer. But some are downright offensive and unnecessary, such as this one in Minstrel Man. Instead of making Dixie Boy Johnson a famous entertainer who specializes in blackface performances, why not just make him a normal vaudeville entertainer? The movie might have been just as good and made even more of an impact. You're lucky that you don't have to see Benny Fields on this podcast sing the nominated song Remember Me to Carolina. He performs it four times in the film, three of them while in blackface. It was hard for me to feel the emotion inside the song and its meaning to the story while watching Fields sing in blackface. But without the visuals, it makes much more easy to appreciate the song and the strong connection to the film. We're introduced to it without music as Fields returns home from a performance, serenading his wife Caroline with a few lines of the song. Carolina. Oh, hello, darling. And tell her I'll never forget her wherever. Wherever I roam. Looks like you've got something behind your back. Just remember Mine. me. Oh, no, what don't. do you got? The Carolina. Oh, don't tease me, darling. Come on, what do you got behind your back? I won't tell you. You know I wrote that song for you. I mean, I couldn't sing it for anyone else. Yes, I know you did, but I still oh, want to see what you got behind your back. Dusty and Sis? Uh-huh. <laughs> well, here it is. Oh, Dixie. You never forget our anniversary, do you? Day after day. In Dixie, every way. The bracelet. I love oh, you darling, it's beautiful. <laughs> I remember that day we saw it. Here's what I write. You mean when we went window wishing? Uh-huh. You knew I wanted it. <laughs> I do the same for all my wives. Oh, you such a kid, you'll never grow up. We get the full performance of it a few minutes later. In the context of the film, Caroline is in the hospital due to give birth. Dixie Boy Johnson is about to go on stage to perform, but he would rather be at the hospital. He goes on stage to participate in a large production featuring about 100 men in blackface before the spotlight goes on him as he sings the full version of Remember Me to Carolina. In the song, he is sending a message to Carolina, a name change that lyricist Harry Revel likely was required to make by the melody written by Paul Webster. Carolina sounds more elegant than Caroline when both names are sung, and I guess no one decided that the wife's name needed to be changed to suit the song. I have another theory about the name change, though, 
Now, perhaps the filmmakers thought no black woman would be named Caroline, but there would be a black woman named Carolina, and a man in blackface would be viewed as singing to someone of the same skin color. Anyway, the message being sent to Carolina is to remember him and keep loving him while he is on his travels. Just before he starts to sing, his friend, May, gestures to him off stage that he is the father of a baby girl. This puts a positive spin on his performance. Pale moon shining Tell her how I'm pining Send a moonbeam telegram Tell her just how blue I am Starlight, star bright First real star I've seen tonight Send a message to my love I'll take this message to Remember me to Carolina And tell her I'll never Forget her wherever I roam Just remember me to Carolina when blue dusk is falling, her sweet voice is calling, calling me home. And day after day, in every way, I love her better. Night after night, here's what I write. In every love letter Remember me to Carolina Where songbirds are maiden And Caroline's waiting, waiting for me And day after day in every way, I love a better Night after night, here's what I write In every love letter Just remember me to Carolina Where songbirds are mating and Caroline's waiting, waiting for me. After some brief applause, 
Dixie sings the song in an encore. As he sang, you're left to wonder why we needed to hear the song again, since none of the lyrics or the melody is different. But as you will hear, there is a reason for the encore performance. Just off stage, Dixie's friend May is on the telephone, where she is told that Caroline died while giving birth. So as Dixie is singing for Carolina to wait for him until he returns, we know before he does that Caroline won't be waiting. Performing the tender love song during the sad scene gives the song a lot of emotional weight. But still, does Dixie have to perform it while in blackface? A distraught Dixie decides to hand over his daughter to the care of May and her husband while he travels the world. He returns years later, only to be turned away. So his agent sends him to Havana, Cuba, where he is so popular that he's asked to sing Remember Me to Carolina again. He tries to sing it, but the emotion is too much for him to finish. Again, Dixie is performing in blackface, so it was tough for me to really appreciate what the filmmakers were trying to do. The fourth and final performance of the song comes at the end of the movie when Dixie returns home and is reunited with his daughter, also named Caroline, who has revived his show and has just performed on stage. Yes, in blackface. But here's the kicker. She comes out to sing Remember Me to Carolina without her blackface makeup, but Dixie is on stage in full blackface. She begins the song, and then May gestures to Dixie as part of the onstage chorus, and he picks up the song as a celebration of the reunion to close out the film.
take this message to my love. The song didn't get a commercial recording, probably because the producer's releasing corporation didn't have money in the budget for a commercial record. That didn't help raise the pedigree of Paul Webster or Harry Revel, despite getting an Oscar nomination. This would be the second and final Oscar nomination for Revel after the so brief it's forgettable There's a Breeze on Lake Louise two years earlier. He'll write a song score for the 1947 film It Happened on Fifth Avenue and then turn to television writing music for the many variety shows that were popular in the 1950s. As for Paul Webster, he's just getting started in Hollywood. He had very little success as a freelance lyricist after contract stints with 20th Century Fox and RKO in the 1930s. All of his songs would have been overlooked in favor of popular ones in the Fred Astaire Ginger Rogers era for RKO, but this time he had an easy road to his first Academy Award nomination at age 37. Thankfully, there is no blackface in the next film, and it takes us down to South America for the nominated song Rio de Janeiro from the movie Brazil. The film seems to be built around Mexican singer Tito Guizar as a songwriter looking for inspiration in his quest to win the annual Brazilian songwriting contest. Yes, I did say that Guizar is Mexican, making the casting choice quite odd. To his credit, Guizar does well with speaking and singing in Portuguese and he has a credible screen presence opposite Virginia Burke, who plays a writer looking to write the ultimate Brazil travelogue and ends up falling in love with Guizar. The nominated song, and all of the songs performed in the film, are the brainchild of Brazilian composer Ari Barroso, who was well known before working on this film as the creator of the song Aquarela do Brasil. Barroso wrote that song in 1939, but it didn't become famous worldwide, until it appeared in the Walt Disney film Saludos Amigos in 1942. The success of that song prompted Republic Pictures to reach out to Barroso to compose music for their movie, which would be entirely set in Brazil. It would be Barroso's first and only contribution to an American-made film, 
and at the very least, he was able to celebrate with an Academy Award nomination. The nominated song, Rio de Janeiro, is the only one performed in the film in English. Its lyrics are written by Ned Washington, who you will remember as the lyricist for When You Wish Upon a Star. With Disney taking a break from making animated films during World War II, Washington became a freelance lyricist, and despite having won an Academy Award, wasn't hired for any major films after working on Dumbo in 1941 and briefly to write the theme song for Saludos Amigos in 1942. Roy Rogers did hire Washington to write some songs for The Singing Cowboy in two films for 1944. Roy Rogers made a cameo in the film Brazil, and the song Hands Across the Border from the film of the same name gave Washington another song credit for the film. We're introduced to the song Rio de Janeiro about halfway through the film when Guizar plays the beginning of the melody on piano. His American friend, played by Edward Everett Horton, is there as a sounding board. He's playing the song to show Horton that Burke's character has inspired the melody. <clears throat> So you see, she already has unintentionally given me a beginning. Washington's lyrics for Rio de Janeiro are very reminiscent of the song Down Argentina Way, which was a Best Song nominee in 1940. That song helped to tell audiences how the music and dance of Argentina makes you want to dance and fall in love. With Rio de Janeiro, Washington takes Barroso's catchy melody and lets us know that love is all around for the taking in Rio. Love reigns supreme in Rio under a canopy of exquisite stars, as sung by Guizar, as he celebrates winning the National Song Contest. The crowd in attendance picks up the song as Guizar is joined on stage by Burke to give us the romantic happy ending as Brazilian and American kiss before we fade to black. I give you Rio de Janeiro! <laughs> The soft spot for moonlight and love music in the air. Where in the world have you found orchids on the ground? May I ask you where? But Of exquisite stars, close the magic of a million guitars, of rain supreme, supreme, hawkins, down in Rio de Janeiro, a 
Thus a flavor that is white Distinct and a certain thrill that's new So if you're allergic to love and romance Give in and give Rio a chance You'll see what Rio does to mundo I should have listened to my mother when she wanted me to take singing lessons. And a certain thrill As I mentioned, this was Ari Barroso's only involvement with Hollywood. After his death in 1964, Aquarela do Brasil remained a popular music choice when the movie calls for a song to play during a scene in Brazil. This isn't the last time we'll hear Ned Washington lyrics, though. After the war ends, he doesn't return to the Walt Disney Studios, keeping his focus on grown-up movies. Lou Pollock and Charles Newman earned their first and last Academy Award nominations for the song they wrote for the musical Lady Let's Dance. The two had worked together in 1943, writing six songs for the forgettable musical Tahiti Honey, but in 1944 they contributed to two musicals for the small production studio Monogram Pictures, Sweethearts of the USA and Lady Let's Dance. Lady Let's Dance was promoted more heavily than Sweethearts of the USA, hence the fact that the studio's Academy Award nomination comes from that film. Lady Let's Dance was built around the talents of ice skater Belita, a one-named unknown who was signed to a lengthy contract with Monogram after participating in the 1936 Olympics for Great Britain. At the time, Belita was not getting much traction in Hollywood, even though her movies revolved around showcasing her superior skating skills. Unlike Sonia Henye, Belita appeared in movies made by a smaller studio that couldn't get the same publicity. The movies Belita made had some spectacle, but they barely earned $1 million in ticket sales. In Lady Let's Dance, Belita plays herself, though she says she is a refugee from the Netherlands during World War II. I don't know why she couldn't have been a British refugee since the United Kingdom was also being ravaged by the war. But anyway, she is discovered as a waitress in a hotel, plucked from obscurity and made into a major stage star who performs exquisite ice dances. We see Belita in three ice skating performances in the movie, 
the first of which features the Academy Award-nominated song Silver Shadows and Golden Dreams. She's paired with Eugen Meckler, also a fantastic skater, for this romantic dance on ice. Silver shadows and golden dreams Tied with ribbons of song beams Darling, what else could I ever ask for? Starry-eyed with a Kisses a shadow's golden moments too sweet to scheming such a silver shadow. Charles Newman's lyrics suggest a love song, but it really just feels like it's setting up an ideal environment for a dance. The music is not hummable, which doesn't help it be memorable when audiences leave the theater or when Academy voters are considering their choices. And it didn't help that this song didn't get released commercially. 
There's another song in the film that could have been just as good of a nominated song. It's the title song, and it also features Belita on skates, though she's doing much more elaborate routines in this number. The song is also more upbeat, has a catchier melody, and again, has more eye-catching visuals to make it more memorable. That song was written by Dave Oppenheim and Ted Gruya, who also wrote two other songs for the film that don't stand out. Gruya was a Romanian composer, and Oppenheim was a lyricist who wrote songs for Belita's Hollywood debut, Silver Skates. Given the connection he had to Belita's career, it's a surprise that one of Oppenheim's songs wasn't nominated from this film, especially the title song. And even more surprising is the absence of any nominated song from Silver Skates in 1943, given that all Monogram had to do was submit any song to the Academy and get an automatic nomination. Monogram had two previous music nominations in 1941 and 1942, so the studio of executives must have slept through the nomination process for 1943. That's not to say that any of the songs from Silver Skates would have had a solid chance of winning the Best Song Academy Award in 1943, but at least they could have been in the running. I mentioned that Lou Pollock and Charles Newman would get their only Academy Award nomination with Silver Shadows and Golden Dreams. Pollock died of a heart attack in 1946 at just 50 years old. Charles Newman, who was not part of the famous Newman musical family, would contribute very little to the movies after his nomination. He lived to be 76 years old, dying in 1976 in Los Angeles. Warner Brothers had such a big success with Thank Your Lucky Stars in 1943 that the studio decided to put together another war morale star-studded movie in 1944 titled Hollywood Canteen. Betty Davis, one of the biggest names on the Warner's lot, helped create the real-life Hollywood Canteen and has a big presence in the film. She sang the Academy Award-nominated song in Thank Your Lucky Stars, but she doesn't sing at all in Hollywood Canteen. It's Joan Leslie who sings the nominated song Sweet Dreams, Sweetheart. Or rather, it's Sally Sweetland who sings, while Joan Leslie lip-syncs the song. Like the other war morale films we learned about in the previous episode, 
Hollywood Canteen isn't really concerned with the plot more than trotting out its top celebrities. Joan Crawford, Eddie Cantor, Peter Lorre, Jane Wyman, and Barbara Stanwyck are just a few of the faces that pop up in the film. Joan Leslie, who played the love interest opposite Oscar winners Gary Cooper and James Cagney in 1941 and 1942, is the only celebrity playing themselves who prominently figures in the plot. The main character is Slim Green, played by Robert Hutton, a dead ringer for Jimmy Stewart in both appearance and acting style. Slim is in the Army in the South Pacific and falls in love with Joan Leslie while watching one of her movies. When he is injured and recuperating in Los Angeles, he finds the Hollywood canteen and has an introduction to Joan as arranged by Betty Davis. A couple of days later, Slim enters the canteen and is recognized as the millionth man to walk through the doors. Part of his prize is an extended evening with Joan Leslie, and it starts with a dance. In the middle of this dance, Joan is asked to sing the song the band is playing. Joni, how about singing a chorus with the band? All right, Jimmy, do you mind? I'd love it. Good night, sweet dreams, tomorrow's another day till then, sweet dreams, sweetheart, good night, sleep tight, I'll see you along the way in dreams, sweet dreams, sweetheart. Sweet Dream Sweetheart by Ted Kohler serves as Joan and Slim's love theme throughout the film, which makes Sweet Dream Sweetheart the centerpiece song of the film. It's part of the underscore when Slim and Joan first meet, and then later when they have a romantic moment away from the canteen. The lyrics by M.K. Jerome work well as a song for two lovers, or as a bedtime song for a child. 
May angels up above watch over you and keep you safe, my love, until the dawn breaks through. Slim is looking at Joan lovingly as she sings that line, but just imagine, five years later, as she's singing it to her young child before bedtime. That's what helps make the song so commercially viable, and Warner Brothers did release a record of Sweet Dream Sweetheart. Because Joan Leslie couldn't sing, and because Warner Brothers didn't want the secret out that Sally Sweetland was the voice behind Joan Leslie, they asked another Warner Brothers actress, Kitty Carlisle, to perform on the record. And with the musician strike over, Carlisle was able to have an orchestra performing with her. As a way to promote Carlisle's version, she sings a reprise of the song at the end of the film when Slim is about to take a train to the ship that will return him to active duty. Slim requested that Carlisle sing the song while she waits for Joan, and as we see that she will not make it, the song takes on a different meaning. Good night, sweet
This song was Kohler's second nomination from 1944, having also written Now I Know, with his former partner Harold Arlen. That relationship was ending in the mid-1940s, with Arlen preferring the partnership with up-and-coming lyricist Johnny Mercer. Kohler had been under contract with Warner Brothers since 1929, mostly writing the underscore for various films and getting no screen credit or writing music for the Merry Melodies cartoons and still getting no credit. And even though he had a hit record for an adult feature film, M.K. Jerome stayed largely unknown after the nomination, continuing to write music for Warner Brothers cartoons. The creators of the next nominated song were definitely not toiling away as unknown songwriters, and the man who sang their song was so successful that anything he touched was turning to pure gold. The songwriters are Jimmy Van Heusen and Johnny Burke, and the singer was Bing Crosby. The song is Swinging on a Star from the movie Going My Way. The role for Bing Crosby was a bit of a departure for the singer. Outside of the road movies he did with Bob Hope, Crosby had been playing either a songwriter or performer. And here he plays a priest named Chuck O'Malley, who is entrusted with turning around the fortunes of a failing church in New York City. Crosby was initially hesitant to agree to do the film with director Leo McCary, predicting that the Catholic Church would strongly object to Bing playing a priest on film. But McCary persisted, as did Paramount executive and former Academy Award-nominated songwriter Buddy De Silva, and Bing Crosby was in, getting some of his best reviews ever. And of course, Father O'Malley has to sing in the movie because he's played by Bing Crosby. His Father O'Malley sings five songs in the film, three of which are written for the film. All three of them were strong contenders for an Academy Award nomination in their own right. The first one we hear is the film's quasi-love song, The Day After Forever. It's first sung by actress Jean Heather as Carol, a runaway who comes to the church looking for work. O'Malley, who professes to having some musical proficiency, naturally plays the piano and sings a bit of it to help her in selling the idea of the song, which is not really about romantic love given Crosby's role in the movie. All day tomorrow I'll be whispering your name And the day after forever I know I'll do the same May time or winter I won't let you out of sight And the day after forever We'll talk about The second song we hear is a much stronger one. It's the song that gives the film its title and has a better tie to the plot. O'Malley wants to sell a song he wrote to a music publisher to make money for the church, and he has his old friend, an opera singer named Jenny, sing it for the music executives on the stage of the Metropolitan Opera House. Serving as backup are a couple dozen boys that Father O'Malley has shaped into a strong church choir. This road leads to rainbow 
executives like the song and Jenny's performance, but they say it's too highbrow and, quote, Schmaltz isn't selling this season, end quote. The music executives leave, and the opera conductor asks the boys to sing another song. One of the boys suggests the Mule Song, which is what Swinging on a Star was called as it was being written and during filming. How would you like to swing on a star, carry moonbeams home in a jar, and be better off than you are? Or would you rather be a mule? A mule is an animal with long, funny ears, picks up at anything he hears. His back is brawny and his brain is weak. He's just plain stupid with a stubborn streak. And by the way, if you hate to go to school, you may grow up to be a mule. Oh, would you like to swing on a star, carry moonbeams home in a jar, and be better off than you are? Or would you rather be a pig? A pig is an animal with dirt on its face. His shoes are a terrible disgrace. He has no manners when he eats his But if you don't care a feather or a fig, you may grow up to be a pig. Oh, would you like to swing on a star, carry moonbeams home in a jar, and be better off than you are? Or would you rather be a fish? A fish won't do anything but swim in a brook. He can't write his name or read a book. To fool the people, is his only thought. Yeah, but even though he's slippery, he still gets caught. But then if that sort of life is what you wish, you may grow up to be a fish. And all the monkeys are in the zoo. Every day you meet quite a few. So you see, it's all up to you. You can be better than you are. You could be swinging on the star. Immediately after the song, the music publishers return, having heard the song performed and instantly agree to pay handsomely for it. And why wouldn't they? The song is instantly catchy, both lyrics and melody, and though it seems like the verses are scolding a young child, you can't help but smile. And when the boys sing, or would you like to swing on a star, carry moonbeams home in a jar, the music plays in a more uplifting chord to match the boys' vocal ranges, making it more optimistic. And even the final two lines of the song help suggest optimism if the children find a way out of their troubled lives. Bing sings, you can be better than you are, with the word are sung in D. Then he finishes the song with, you could be swinging on a star, with star, wore no tire, in A, to lift us to a cheerful ending. The boys singing with Crosby come from the New York-based Robert Mitchell Boys Choir, which had also been a part of another Academy Award-nominated song, Wishing, back in 1939. The origin of the song's lyrics is the stuff of legend. Burke and Van Heusen were tasked by director Leo McCary to write a song in which Bing sings about the Ten Commandments. 
arguing that they couldn't do better than the original writer, the songwriting duo threw away all attempts to turn the Ten Commandments into a song. While they attempted to regroup, Burke was having dinner at Crosby's home when one of Crosby's children complained about going to school the next day. Well, if you don't go to school, you might grow up to be a mule, was Crosby's response. And when you say something with a rhyming pattern to it, a lyricist is going to latch onto it immediately. Burke felt that the lyrics forming in his head were much better than any attempt to make the Ten Commandments hummable. Van Heusen set Burke's lyrics into a catchy melody that became another big hit for Crosby. When you put all three of the Burke-Van Heusen songs up against each other, the toe-tapping Swinging on a Star is definitely going to get the votes from the Paramount Music Department as its nominated song. Crosby took the song into the studio in February 1944, while the film was still in production. This is when Burke and Van Heusen changed the title to Swinging on a Star, which is much more agreeable than the Mule song. Instead of mostly preteen boys singing with them, Crosby was backed on the record by the slightly older Williams Brothers Quartet, which included feature singing sensation Andy Williams. Andy was the youngest of the brothers, just turning 16 years old when the song was recorded. His older brother, Bob, was 26. The tone of the song hasn't changed, but having more of an orchestral background balances out the vocals. Would you like to swing on a star? Carry moonbeams home in a jar? And be better off than you are Or would you rather be a mule? A mule is an animal with long funny ears Kicks up at anything he hears His back is brawny but his brain is weak He's just plain stupid with a stubborn streak And by the way, if you hate to go to school You may grow up to be a mule Or would you rather be a pig? A pig is an animal with dirt on his face. His shoes are a terrible disgrace. He has no manners when he eats his food. He's fat and lazy and extremely rude. But if you don't care a feather or a fig, you may grow up to be a pig. Or would you like to swing on a star? Carry moonbeams home in a jar. Be better off than you are, Or would you rather be a fish? A fish won't do anything but swim in a brook. He can't write his name or read a book. To fool the people is his only thought. And though he's slippery, he still gets caught. But then if that sort of life is what you wish, you may grow up to be a fish. kind of jumped up slippery fish and all the monkeys are in the zoo every day you meet quite a few so you see it's all up to you you can be better than you are you could be swinging on a star 
The song, as usual for Bing Crosby, went to number one on the Billboard sales charts and stayed there for 12 weeks and quickly sold more than a million copies. And this was the first Hollywood recording job for the Williams Brothers after getting their start on the radio in Ohio, Illinois, and Iowa. Naturally, many others released their versions of the song, including Frank Sinatra and Tony Bennett, but nothing was beating Bing's version. Would the song be beaten at the Academy Awards? Well, I have two more songs to introduce before we learn which one wins the Academy Award. Nominee number 11 was Too Much in Love from Song of the Open Road. It gives us the film debut of 15-year-old Jane Powell, who was born Suzanne Burse, but given her new stage name based on the name of her character in this movie. In the end, it's not really a star vehicle for Jane Powell, but it would start her on the road to stardom as a singer and actor. In the movie, Jane is a child actor who runs away from her overbearing mother to join a group of teenage farmers at a youth hostel. She helps orchestrate a couple of romances, despite her ineptitude at being handy at pretty much anything. One of the love stories involves the top two farmers in the group, Bonnie and Jack. On his way out to enjoy a little evening entertainment with his friends, Jack notices he isn't wearing pants. The realization prompts him to sing the film's nominated song, Too Much in Love, describing how he doesn't care if he looks silly or isn't doing things right. As long as people know he's in love, everything is okay. In the middle of the song, he begins dancing with Bonnie to express his love for her through the song. in love to know what I'm doing too much in love but it's divine all I can think of are those sighs of yours those eyes of yours that shine too much in love but oh how I love it this is no fly-by-night affair I may wind up behind my dreams But I'm too much in love to care Half the time I don't know what I'm saying I'm walking in an ever-loving days there should be someone to see that no harm comes to me on account of recently everybody says I'm too much in love to know what I'm doing too much in love but it's divine All I can think of Are those eyes of yours Those eyes of yours 
is pretty much a throwaway, performed once and not repeated in the underscore to enhance future scenes. And for a film that is meant to showcase Jane Powell's singing talents, it's surprising that the nominated song isn't performed by her. There is one song that she sings that might have been a better nominated song. It isn't a love song, which makes it stand out even more. The song is I'm Having Fun in the Sun, which Jane sings while she's in the act of running away except she's not running, but rather riding a bicycle. Remember that it's the employees of the music department at each studio who pick the nominated songs, and they are required by the Academy to choose from a list if more than one song is eligible. So everyone at Unite Artists decided that the love song was better than the uplifting song about running away. All the original songs in the film are written by Walter Kent and Kim Gannon, who began their collaboration in 1943 with their attempt at one-upping Red Christmas called I'll Be Home for Christmas. They wrote songs for two other movies, including Casanova and Burlesque, which was a big flop for Republic Pictures, and as such, didn't get picked as the studio's Oscar-nominated song over Rio de Janeiro, which you heard earlier. Despite their success with I'll Be Home for Christmas, Kent and Gannon couldn't get the work they needed with the big studios and continued to work with the smaller studios, especially Republic Pictures, on what was called Poverty Row in Hollywood. Our final nominated song doesn't come from a Poverty Row studio. It comes from the mega-successful MGM, where Judy Garland, as Esther Smith, gives another iconic performance in Meet Me in St. Louis. Your memories of the film might include the classic Have Yourself a Merry Christmas, which was yet another attempt by songwriters to cash in on the secular Christmas song market that Irving Berlin bust wide open with White Christmas two years earlier. That was just one of three songs that Ralph Blaine and Hugh Martin wrote for the movie. The Boy Next Door is the film's love song, about the crush she has on her next-door neighbor, John Truitt. 
The two of them haven't spoken to each other or shared a glance across the lawn, but Esther is in love with him. The moment I saw him smile, I knew he was just my style. My only regret is we've never met, though I dream of him all the while. But he doesn't know I exist, no matter how I may persist. So it's clear to see there's no hope for me, though I live at 5135 Kensington Avenue, and he lives at 5133. How can I ignore the boy next door? I love him more than I can say. Doesn't try to please me, doesn't even tease me. And he never sees me glance his way. And though I'm heart sore, the boy next door, affection for me won't display. I just adore him. So I can't ignore him, the boy next door. The song has wonderful rhymes for door, like ignore and adore. But when you're putting up a nominated song, you need something a little catchier than the boy next door has to offer. And that could be found in the nominated song, The Trolley Song. John has agreed to meet Esther at the trolley station for a ride to the fairgrounds, but he's nowhere to be found when the trolley departs. The chorus begins the song, singing about the joys of riding on the trolley and the noises it makes. Using words to describe the sound of the bells, the motor, and the brakes, as well as the zing and thump of their hearts, adds more to the song. Once John is spotted running to the trolley, Esther changes the lyrics to sing about meeting an imaginary man on the trolley and how his light green tie, light brown derby, general clumsiness, and handsome smile made her fall in love. Bye. 
yourself a merry little Christmas. The song was so depressing in the first draft that Judy Garland refused to sing it. She wanted something that would be uplifting in the scene when her little sister is crying about leaving St. Louis for New York in a few days. The song began with the implication that everyone would be dead next year. So enjoy Christmas right now. That lyric went out the door, but the downbeat feeling of the song remained which is probably why it did not get that Academy Award nomination. White Christmas at least evoked happy memories. This song implied that things might not be as happy next year.
myself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. Next year all our troubles will be out of sight. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the Yuletide gay. Next year all our troubles will be miles away. The nomination for The Trolley Song marked their first Academy Award nominations for Blaine and Martin, who had been working together since 1942 as contract workers for MGM. But there remained some controversy regarding the true authorship of many of the songs, including all of the ones for Meet Me in St. Louis. In his autobiography, called The Boy Next Door, Martin claimed that all of the songs written by Ralph Blaine and Hugh Martin for Meet Me in St. Louis were written by Hugh Martin alone. In the book, published just a year before his death in 2011, Martin says, quote, I was reasonably content to let him receive equal screen credit, mainly because this bizarre situation was caused by my lack of business acumen, end quote. Martin was upset that Arthur Phyllis Bronlich's biography of Ralph Blaine seemed to suggest that Blaine himself had told Bronlich that he wrote the lyrics for many of the Martin Blaine songs. But the kicker is that Ralph Blaine died in 1995 so he wasn't around when Bronlich wrote and published her book in 2008, and he wasn't able to dispute or corroborate the claims that Martin made. In his book, Martin writes that, quote, when Ralph came to MGM, the songs he submitted for Meet Me in St. Louis were rejected, and Ralph stopped writing. He was suddenly very much the party boy, all play and no work. So all of the Meet Me in St. Louis songs were written entirely by me, words and music, end quote. As it stands, the credit on all the Blaine Martin songs remain untouched, particularly on Meet Me in St. Louis, since Martin agreed, apparently in his contract, to allow Blaine to keep all songwriting credit. Whether or not Hugh Martin did all or part of the writing, the three songs have become classics that have a life away from the film and also became so tied with the film that each scene comes to mind when thinking of them. All three of the original songs from Meet Me in St. Louis were very popular for Judy Garland. Have Yourself a Merry Christmas was probably one of her top five signature songs in a career that included so many by 1944 and would continue to grow in the 1950s. The music, Judy Garland's grand performance, and strong direction by Vincente Minnelli helped Meet Me in St. Louis become the second highest grossing film of 1944, making about $1.5 million less than Bing Crosby's Going My Way. Well, that's it. Those are the 12 stories behind the 12 nominated songs of 1944. I'm sure you need a refresher on the titles, so here they are. I Couldn't Sleep a Wink Last Night, I'll Walk Alone, I'm Making Believe, Long Ago and Far Away, Now I Know, Remember Me to Carolina, Rio de Janeiro, Silver Shadows and Golden Dreams, Sweet Dreams, Sweetheart, Swinging on a Star, Too Much in Love, 
and the trolley song. And if the Academy Award for Best Song were given to performers of the song as well as the songwriters, we'd have a big battle brewing with Frank Sinatra, Bing Crosby, Judy Garland, Dinah Shore, twice, and Rita Hayworth's Singing Double. After the nominations were announced, it was clear that Swinging on a Star would have the advantage, given that Going My Way earned 10 nominations, including Best Picture, and Bing Crosby's first ever nomination for Best Actor after starring as the leading man in more than 20 films. As a point of interest, Barry Fitzgerald, who played Father Fitzgibbons in Going My Way, was nominated for Best Actor and Best Supporting Actor, a distinction that he will own alone since the Academy changed the rules after this to prohibit an actor getting nominated in both categories for the same performance. There was a general pall over the proceedings of the Academy Awards ceremony on March 15, 1945. Mark Sandrich, the current head of the Directors Guild who had guided a half dozen of the movies with Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers and was also the producer of that year's Academy Awards, died suddenly at his home at the age of 44. The show went on, though, with a brief tribute to start the ceremony. Composer Jimmy Van Heusen was one of the few nominees to feel the most heartbroken by Sandrich's sudden death, as Sandrich was the one to convince Van Heusen to leave New York for a better life in Hollywood. The general public was treated to the entire ceremony broadcast over the radio airwaves for the first time in the Academy's 17 years. Bob Hope co-hosted the show with director John Cromwell, whose son James was five years old at the time and 50 years away from being invited to the Academy Awards himself as a nominee. The ceremony featured musical performances by the Andrews Sisters and Danny Kaye, but none of the 12 nominated songs were sung. That would have been the perfect time to perform some or all of the nominated tunes because right after that musical intermission, Bob Hope presented the original song award and he had the good fortune of naming Swinging on a Star as the best song of 1944 based on votes from Academy members. This gave Jimmy Van Heusen and Johnny Burke their first Academy Awards, and for Van Heusen, it happened on his first nomination. Neither of the songwriters were there to accept the award. According to Van Heusen's biography by Christopher Coppola, Burke lied about a death in the family as an excuse to stay away, while Van Heusen decided to have a medical checkup that night. He heard about the Academy Award victory on the radio surrounded by nurses at St. Vincent's Hospital. I was a hero among the nurses, and I got my first taste of how important the Academy Award is to most people. I like the feeling, Van Heusen said. Winning the Academy Award gave Van Heusen and Burke the impetus to follow in Irving Berlin's footsteps and create their own music publishing house. The first thing they did was buy the rights to their songs from Going My Way, and they would make a mint off those songs for many years. Going My Way was the big winner of the night, taking seven awards, including Best Supporting Actor for Barry Fitzgerald, Best Picture, and Best Actor for Bing Crosby. Like Van Heusen and Burke, Crosby hadn't planned on attending the ceremony. He was singing on the Kraft Music Hall radio show that night, but when he finished, he and his wife dashed over to the Grauman's Chinese Theater in time to hear Gary Cooper announce that Bing Crosby had won the Oscar. Greatest pleasure I've ever had to present to you the Best Acting Award for 1944 for your wonderful, superb performance. Superb? Superb. Oh, my heavens. 
That's uh, <laughs> the best word I can dig up at the moment. In going my way. Thank you very much, Gary. Sing my congratulations. I couldn't be more surprised if I won the Kentucky Derby, really. Swinging on a Star became the first winning song to appear in a Best Picture winner, and Bing Crosby now had three Academy Award winning songs to his credit, even though he wasn't given the recognition for it publicly since he couldn't win the Academy Award. No one had ever sung two winning songs besides him, and now he stood well ahead of his peers with three songs. One of them was sung to a child, another sung with a group of children, and the other a popular Christmas song. Surprisingly, none of his love songs that made him so popular and caused a lot of trouble for his songwriters has won an Academy Award so far. The success of Going My Way led to a sequel the following year, which meant more songs for Van Eusen and Burke to write for Bing Crosby. We'll hear one of those songs in our next episode featuring the Academy Award-nominated songs of 1945. The list of nominated songwriters for that year is a who's who of the best songwriters of the 1940s, and I'm looking forward to hearing those songs and telling you more about the people who wrote them. So yeah, this has been a very lengthy episode with 12 songs to cover. I'm so happy you stuck with me, and I'm sure you might have a new favorite song or at least have an appreciation of a couple of them at least. Let's end it here, but before we go, remember that you can send me questions or comments via email at jeffswim at AOL.com or contribute to the conversation on Twitter with the handle at Best Song Podcast. As always, thanks for singing along with me. Let's do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.